from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas. When a community bank sells its assets to a credit union, it's often a win-win situation for the credit union, community bank, and the community involved. I'm Jennifer Plager, Managing Editor with CUNA News. I recently spoke with Caroline Willard, President and CEO of the Cornerstone League. Willard spoke about the myths and misperceptions about credit unions that bankers mention, the idea of banks selling their assets to credit unions, how often it occurs, how credit unions benefit, and more. Caroline, what's driving the prevalence of the myths that are circulating about credit unions? It's sort of a hundred plus year old grudge that bankers have had about credit unions' mere existence, if you ask me. It's almost a red herring. It's the latest attack that the bankers are mounting to say unfair, unfair, unfair. And yet, really, if we break down the facts, and we will in a minute, we know that credit unions don't have enough market share for this to be a valid argument or even really to be a formidable threat to bankers' existence. And so they are objecting to a way to allow credit unions to grow, which has been their siren song for decades. And what are some of the myths that are out there that the bankers are talking about? Well, their number one thing, their top hit (laughs) on the top 100 that they keep coming back to is our tax exemption. And they extract the idea that credit unions enjoy the privileges that are not afforded to banks because they don't pay any income tax. And yet that's not entirely true because credit unions do in fact pay about $25 billion annually in local, state, and federal taxes. They provide about $18.9 billion annually in financial benefits to consumers through higher savings and returns, lower rates. So we know that credit unions are providing a healthy source of competition and also just effectively providing lower rates on loans and higher rates on deposits. Through all of this effort, they're generating about $4.9, almost $5 billion in annual benefits to consumers due to that competitive presence. So because credit unions exist, we think that the entire marketplace for financial services is better for consumers. So there is a fact that remains that credit unions do pay local, state, and federal taxes. And so that's that common thing that banks always come back to is, oh, they're not taxed, and so they shouldn't have any additional powers. And they also, you know, with this latest kind of onslaught of arguments that they've been making about specifically to banks selling to credit unions is they believe that a charter conversion, in their opinion, would siphon off tax revenue. But again, if you think about the statistics that I just delivered that credit unions deliver to the economy, to consumers, that's about nine times the true cost of our tax exemption. And I'm using air quotes because we're just in audio right now, but... So if you think about what they're saying the cost of our tax exemption would be, it's about $16 billion per year, and that's across more than 5,100 institutions. So in other words, were credit unions to pay the income taxes that bankers feel we should, it would be worth about $16 billion. I've already enumerated all the different ways that we're providing much more than that in benefit to the economy and to consumers. So 
Another misperception that banks like to promulgate is that the credit unions are getting too big. They look to like Navy Federal Credit Union and say, that's too big. That shouldn't even be a credit union anymore. And the reality is that the three largest banks, each of them on their own, are larger than the entire credit union movement. The largest 100 banks control 75% of total depository institution assets, 75% by 100 institutions. Let's think about what those big banks have done. And I'm really on a roll now because I'm going to talk about their bad behavior. If we look at the $243 billion in fines that the big banks have been fined for their bad behavior since the 0809 crisis, these big banks just keep getting bigger. So meanwhile, the credit union market share has stayed in single digits. So it's really not even based in fact that credit unions are getting too big. Even if single institutions are growing substantially, they still are not in the realm of where the big banks are. And then I guess the last misperception specific to this topic that I wanted to be sure to call out is that they're saying that credit unions are forcing, there's those air quotes again, forcing banks into a purchase agreement. So let's be real here. It's quite the contrary. Oftentimes, community banks are very open to and in fact, even pursue credit union purchasers, especially when larger banks in their area show no interest. And so those are a few of the misperceptions that these banks are promulgating out there. Caroline, you mentioned bank sales. So how does this all relate to credit unions purchasing bank assets? So according to a 2019 CUNA bank purchase study, bank owners have a lot of reasons for selling to a credit union. Sometimes that includes like a better cultural fit, a likelihood of employee retention. You know, credit unions oftentimes retain the employees from the institutions that they acquire. And then also preservation of a community legacy. Credit unions oftentimes will keep an institution running. And so preserve that in the marketplace. And in September 2020, I I have a local example from Tinker Federal Credit Union. And the gentleman who is currently the CEO of Tinker, he's actually retiring at the end of August. And so shout out to Mike Clover, who is a past chairman of Cornerstone League and a good friend of mine. But in 2020, last year, Tinker acquired Prime Bank. They're located in Oklahoma City. And the It's a community bank that served approximately 2,000 people in Edmond, Oklahoma, actually. And the incoming president, who's the president and COO, who will be the CEO after Mr. Clover retires, is Dave Willis. And he said that the transaction opened a lot of doors for both entities. It was a good deal for both the bank and for the credit union. And, you know, I know that when we talked to Dave about that, he said, you know, look, we retained the employees. We grew our commercial lending base. There are a lot of good outcomes. There's not really anything you can point to that's in any way a downside for the community. So the fact is that the staff and the incoming talent can benefit when a bank sells to a credit union. And then I guess the last thing I would say about this is that bank sales to credit unions provide significant benefits to bank owners because they, let's be honest, they spin off some cash proceeds from the sale rather than just stock ownership. And so sometimes that's a desirable thing in a transaction. And, you know, really where that comes from is credit unions can't legally purchase bank stock. 
So they have to purchase the assets and assume the bank's liabilities by paying cash to the selling shareholders. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with that kind of transaction. But let's be honest, that sometimes that is part of the motivation. How often are these happening? So that's what makes me laugh the hardest, I think, is that this is not quite much ado about nothing, but it's much ado about very little. Because in 2019, there were 13 of these transactions before COVID slowed things down even further in 2020 when there were only five. And so there's all of this hubbub, and yet we're not talking about a lot of transactions here. So we know that COVID-19 slowed down really a lot of M&A deals. We know that that wasn't specific to our industry, but now that things are getting back to normal, we've noticed that there is an upturn in the number of credit unions reconsidering bank purchases as part of their forward-looking strategies. I mean, let's be honest, we had a complete disruption in our business model in 2020. And so really most businesses, if they're smart, are looking at ways that they can take what they learned in 2020 and further reimagine themselves. And so I would just say that bank purchases are one of many things that credit unions are considering as a way out of this pandemic. And then related to frequency, there's a survey conducted by a trade publication, which is called Bank Director. Six in 10 bankers said they were still open to an acquisition. And even though they plan on focusing on organic growth, just 28% overall want to be active acquirers. So there's not a huge appetite amongst banks for buying other banks. And so they are looking for buyers. And so that's part of what's driving the admittedly small volume that we're talking about. You kind of touched on some of the benefits in your example with Tinker, but what kind of benefits do credit unions see when they do decide to purchase? You know, it's still a little bit limiting when we think about field of membership for a credit union. And so there are times when in purchasing a bank, a credit union can expand into different geographic areas. And that is a piece of it. And your results may vary, right? Because it is a little different state to state and depending on local regulations regarding field of membership. But they can also add expertise that the credit union doesn't currently possess or just build on it, like what I was talking about with Tinker. They can obviously grow their membership because they have a whole new slate of bank customers that will now be credit union members. They can drive economies of scale. And that's something, and I've been talking about economies of scale for a long time as part of this credit union movement, because I mean, I came from an aggregator, right? I came from co-op financial services, and that was the number one thing they did was create scale for credit unions. And so that is sort of a fringe benefit, if you will, from these types of purchases. So credit union can also purchase a bank within its own footprint to prevent a competitor from entering that can be a really savvy strategy. And then also it can be an efficient way to expand brick and mortar access or add commercial lending expertise. It gives an ability to sort of diversify with almost an off-the-shelf solution. And what about for the credit union's members, the maybe the bank's members, and, and even the communities that are located in? What kind of benefits do they see? I'm super passionate about this one because I dread the formation of financial or banking deserts. And so if a community bank's original purpose is to channel loans back into the community that it serves, if they close their door with no buyers, 
then the loan capacity in that community just dries up and it can happen really quickly, leaving that segment of the population unserved and unbanked. And that's the true definition of a financial desert. And a credit union acquisition would be a great solution for that entire community then so that there's still access to affordable loans so that people can live their best lives. And honestly, if I'm looking back to Tinker Federal Credit Union again, when they purchased Prime Bank, they said that the transaction opened a lot of doors for both entities, saying they were able to retain the staff, so more employment within that community, and then even add some new staff members because the combined institution needed some additional talent. So that opened up even more jobs in the community. It's just good all the way around. And Caroline, any closing thoughts or, or where do we go from here? Well, if I was a member of Congress, I would think that there would be other priorities that they could focus on apart from worrying about whether credit unions are acquiring banks. We've got pieces of our economy that still need rebuilding, even though we're rebounding better than we thought. There are still a lot of concerns about the type of debt that we've entered into. And so wouldn't that be a better priority for Congress or our leaders in general? And then, you know, there are some regulatory loopholes that, you know, I'd love to redirect their attention to things like rent-a-bank charters and fintech expansion into spaces that have traditionally been held by regulated institutions. Where is the regulatory oversight going to come from for some of these fintechs? Now, I'm all about innovation. I absolutely love it that as a consumer, I love it that some of the friction is being taken out of my shopping, my banking, my life. That's all great. But in an industry, and I would call this an industry in general, I would call it a movement if we're talking about credit unions, in an industry where we're dealing with people's livelihoods, there does need to be some oversight. I worry about fintechs growing so quickly that that oversight isn't keeping up with what they're doing. We also need to look at the other side of that coin. And that is that at times, regulation can constrain growth And frequently, that's what we're, as trade associations, we're called upon is to help ease that regulatory burden for institutions like credit unions that already have ample fiduciary and regulatory oversight. And so Congress has a lot of other things to work on. It would be my recommendation that worrying about bank sales to credit unions should be at the bottom of their list. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher Radio.